Hello, Alaska. This is Pat Race. And this is Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. Happy New Year, Pat. Happy New Year. Welcome back. It's good to chat with you. Did you have, yeah. a, good, did you have a good break? Yeah, you know, I kind of like, I feel like, uh, you know, every year I try to do like an end of year article that kind of wraps up the year in politics in Alaska. And I kind of just like sort of had enough of it. I think we just we just got done with the Eastman trial. It's been like I was trying to think about, you know, what what kind of year is 2022? We like to sort of talk about, you know, the threads in the the stories that are around us, all the sort of themes and stuff. And I don't really have still don't really have a whole lot of like clear takeaways about like what kind of year 2022 was other than it kind of just was a lot. It feels like there was just a new thing to be worried about at like every turn. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I have a, a heightened sense of um, alarm maybe. Like 2019, yeah. 2019 was like... <laughs> it was alarming. Well, I mean, the previous years, like 2019 was was the, the big Dunleavy budget year and the recall. And then 2020 was the pandemic hit and like the, all the black lives matter people taking over little chunks of cities and riots. And, and then, um, 2021 was, was kind of like trying to reimagine, you know, people are getting vaccinated and like, what does the world look like now after all of this? And, you know, 2022 just felt like I was kind of on guard the whole time. And that's like, a little stressful in its own way of like okay what's the next you know what's the next big weird thing that's gonna happen and i you know it was an election year which sort of you know i know i know how much you love an election year (laughs) (laughs) i uh but i but i it just everything feels heightened and dramatic and like it it it, it, i you know i just got done watching some of the world cup games and um it wasn't as floppy as it sometimes has been in the past but i feel like in election year politics it's like watching a game where everyone is just making soccer flops everywhere and you're like oh yeah come, come yeah. on man like get up what are you doing it's just like you know yeah i mean as somebody who's covered oh, a ton they of me. A- they failed me they failed me what? yeah as somebody's covered like a ton of apoc hearings you know and all these election lawsuits and all that sort of stuff yeah it's totally felt like that so it's hard to like gauge i think it, it's one of those things where I think when you're like stressed out for a long time, it's hard to recognize like what we should be stressed out about, what we don't need to be stressed out about, that kind of thing. I mean, I think like, you know, we spent a lot of time this year uh, worrying about like the Constitutional Convention, for example. Uh, You know, that sort of felt like it was a possibility. It felt like we might have Senator Kelly Shabaka, U.S. Representative uh Sarah Palin at a couple points this year yep. and then it was like not as bad as expected you know in some places it was like outright like a, a kind of unforeseen like positive outcome with it and it's it's so yeah it's just it's sort of been a lot like I, and I think um you know I hope you know people are able to kind of disengage from it at points you know I think that we frequently get wrapped up in the political battles as you know, especially on the national level as the thing that will decide whether or not we are happy in the next year. And there's so many other factors, I think, that play into our, like, happiness and well-being that are either on the local government level or just, like, in our personal sort of interpersonal level. And, 
you know, I, I think it's easy to lose sight of some of the things that matter more. And so, you know, I've spent the last couple of weeks going ice skating a whole bunch and, you know, spending time with my family. And, uh, you know, for me, at least, that was really important in, in kind of time to reset and recharge. Because, you know, this next year is going to be, 2023 is going to be a whole lot too, right? We don't have a majority in our house. You know, we have a governor who is back on this, four, you know, got another four years to figure out that yeah. he's not beholden to anybody. We, the, and... the, we live under the Dunleavy mandate now. <laughs> yeah. We reelected him. We have a U.S. Congress that, you know, as as we are at least recording this, I think they're going through their th- fourth or fifth vote right now. And yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting to see how all that kind of is playing out on, on some of these levels about, you know, just the, the sort of partisan divide of it all. So I was reading that's the first time since 1923 they haven't had a, a successful vote on the speaker right away, and so this is a, and and the, and a lot of the times, a lot of the times uh, that the, that they've had trouble disagreeing on speakers, I think it was like 13 years in a row or something, led right up to the Civil War. So that's exciting. Um, <laughs> well, that's, yeah. Put a little uh, pin in the things. If you, if you, yeah. you know, if you're up at 3 a.m. in the morning uh, worrying about something, you could just think about that. Yeah. Uh, you, you look at this this argument they're having right now today at this very moment on the federal level. What is it, January fourth today? And they're tr- they're trying to find the shape of of their house. And you know we're gonna probably see that here on the local level too. Um, we've got a really close divide, and a lot of um, you know we've got contentious personalities, and we've got new people that don't know each other yet very well, and haven't had time to build some of the trust that's required to build a good coalition. Um, so it's going to be it'll it'll be probably like it was a few years ago when they tried to find a new shape and uh, that ate up with their first what was it first couple weeks of the session something like that yeah, yeah yeah it was almost a month I think oh wow yeah um I mean I think it, it really is interesting I you know especially on the on the national level because you do see a lot of parallels to how it has played out in Alaska you know I think you know moderate Republican is a re- is a very relative term nowadays but you know we've sort of seen this sort of similar split between kind of what we, you consider as the moderate Republicans the sort of the traditional Republicans and then like the extreme right Republicans. And we just got done with a big trial over David Eastman's uh, eligibility to serve in the legislature. You know, I would imagine that there were not a, not a zero number of House Republicans that were kind of hoping that he might be sent home because, or at least disqualified because, you know, I think there's, there's you know, his refusal to kind of play ball, to agree to, to vote for the budget, which is really the main kind of issue that a lot of people are, a lot of this stuff is sort of breaking down over, um, is you know exactly what's going on on the federal level in in a, in a sense where you have you know an extreme far right that that they they, they need to, that everyone else on that party needs to come along if they want to vote for stuff, but it, they understand that they've got the power and they're not afraid to like flex it. Yeah, it's and, it's like uncompromising. I would say that. Yeah, the, and I you see that with Eastman a lot, where where he goes after people who make small compromises in in order to you know pass things that are part of their agenda. They're like, you know, like we can let's take let's take this highly contentious, divisive issue off the table so that we can talk about building roads and. <laughs> And and yeah, he, and he'll he'll lean into the firestorm, and um, it makes it hard for him to work with. And he was a, a key figure 
in the assembly of the bipartisan coalition in the House previously. So it's it's likely that if a bipartisan coalition forms, it will be because he is there. Because yeah, he apparently yeah. is very, very, very difficult to work with. I mean, yeah, he's been he's been booted from the Republican minority at least twice, right? This last time was earlier in 2022. I mean, it was when he was um, it was the what the Foundation for Applied Conservative Leadership, which is basically right. just like a group that kind of gets together and figures out ways to make the life of other Republicans difficult and scary just like that the acronym is facile yeah (laughs) so i mean and and so now they're they need they need him you know he's going to be have basically if they if they you know get to a 21 member majority that you know just it to me it is like logistically really interesting where it's like okay they're 20 right now they need to bring somebody over that person would be coming over and empowering eastman with the knowledge that Eastman will have an effective veto over anything that they want to do. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's, it, it's to me, it, it speaks to, or it, it, I think, you know, if, if you're being realistic about it, I think uh, that, you know, the idea, there's been some talk about like a, a real centrist kind of super majority thing with a few people on either end that are on the outs. Yeah. Um, it kind of make it sort of starts to make some logistical sense, I think, if you just want to get like the work done on on some level. Because you know we've seen this, you know, the the Senate in the last couple of years has done what do they call it the the caucus of the caucus equals. of equals. Yeah, that worked really and, well. <laughs> and and yeah, and so like you know they didn't they went into it without the binding agreement to vote for the budget, and then surprise they didn't have enough votes to pass the budget on their own. So then mm-hmm. they were in a place where they were negotiating with the Democrats. Well, and, and also the that, that concession, and, that caucus of equals put Reinbold on the Judiciary Committee, and that turned into a circus, right? I mean, yeah. like, can you imagine giving David Eastman, Eastman. a committee chair? And then, and, yeah. then, and then not to mention, let's throw Jamie Allard into the mix. And and we've all seen the work she's done with the, you know, the fine work she's done with the Anchorage Assembly, and, and it's it becomes uh, very complicated to imagine how a Republican coalition would function. And so yeah. I think that if you're uh, if you're a moderate Republican or if you have some hope for, you know, doing the work uh, that is required to like run a state like Alaska, I think it starts looking pretty attractive to to find that kind of center um, coalition, because yeah. it's you know, it's going to if, if you want a circus, you you can lean into those folks. But if you want to do the work, then you go down the middle. Yeah. And I think, too, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, I think. What we've seen on on the federal level, especially, you know, over the last however long it's been, is that you know the 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 position of the of the right seems to be more and more like centered around ensuring Democrats can't get anything done, right? And so when you are united in opposition, it's sort of it's it becomes really difficult to be united in a common goal or any, any solution, right? When your entire thing is obstructionism. It's all of a sudden hard to be a governing party, and that's the thing is that David Eastman's never been in a majority, right? Uh, and I thought, I, yeah, I don't think so. Some of it is this view that government is inherently evil, and that that yeah. government should not exist, and that any work that you're doing to obstruct government is somehow good work. You know that the um, that the enemy is not necessarily even the Democrats; that the enemy is is a functioning government that will 
you know, that is this kind of ominous, shape, oh, you're shapeless almost, thing, you know, and, and so <laughs> you're, you're almost sounding like someone might be anti-government. Well, that's what well, I mean. That's what I'm saying is like, I think that there's, there's a pretty big faction in Alaska that, that doesn't like the, the, you know, concept of government. And I think that there's, um, you know, so in that sense to be obstructionist is to be successful. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate because, you know, like we've, as we've seen more and more this year, now that we've ha- have had more, you know, m- more conservative leadership under both Dunleavy and Bronson, we've seen w- what those effects are. We've seen things like this food stamp article that Claire Strimple just put out from K2. Like that was excellent reporting, sh- excellent yeah. reporting, kind of shocking. Um, I'd love to talk about that a little bit, but the, but essentially there's thousands of Alaskans right now that have many months long backlog on getting their food stamps and so this is causing a lot of stress in people's lives when they can't eat or when they can't feed their children um and uh you know claire's reporting was really good she she used some anonymous sources i know there's some like thoughts about that in the journalism world but i felt like this is the right way to do it where you're talking to someone who has a who has inside knowledge of a operation is and is wants to remain anonymous because they're protecting their job and livelihood but i mean it's exactly why you would do it and, and, yeah. and that's the thing too is that you know when i'm sure that you know unlike you know bloggers and that sort of thing you know the kind of rigor that goes into using an anonymous source at a you know mainstream publication is extremely high i would imagine that their editor her editor editors or editor went through it a lot. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of vetting and all that sort of stuff. And that's the kind of like extra work that you don't get to really see sometimes, but you know, that there's not a, it's not a light decision to use an anonymous source in a, you know, when you're not a, when you're not a blogger, it's tough to use one. So, you know, it's a really good reason. And I think it, you know, it paints a picture that I think is really important and, you know, you're never going to get a straight and honest answer from the administration because, you know, it's like not their, you know, they don't want to, be negative about it right you know and so um to get this and to know just how i mean it, the whole basically the whole way it all boiled down is that yeah let's everyone summarize, said don't summarize the article don't, for me yeah so it's basically like there's this huge backlog why is there a huge backlog it's because there's not enough people uh on the job it's basically been a re- uh, revolving door uh and this is something that like everybody who has any sort of interaction with the system has been warning would happen for a long time. And they've eliminated something like a hundred positions near or 60 to hundred positions, mostly through attrition sort of stuff. So it's like they didn't cut, you know, eliminate anybody, but they didn't replace anybody. So, yeah. you know, there's talk about just a, a massive amount of overtime, massive amount of hours worked by these people, just like a massive amount of burnout. And, and what it means is that people who, you know, are relying on these programs aren't getting the help that is is there. It's not even like there's not aid available. It's there is aid available. It's just the state isn't capable of getting it to people in a timely manner. And we've seen this, like we've seen this throughout the pandemic, right? We they had the huge issues with the state run, you know, kind of failures around the state run version of the PPP program where, you know, the application process was like really unclear and people you know there's yeah. just all, and the money all sat there about it. it's yeah. just kind of sat there for a long time without being used and you're like wow people could really use that money right now and it exists and it's for that purpose and it's federal dollars and it's uh it'd be great to put it in people's pockets that are having trouble right i know you know i, I get labeled as like a dirty liberal progressive 
writer and, and I like, mean fairly I, I would if fairly <laughs> but I would also say that like you know I'm not I when you strip it all away I'm not, I don't want to be like partisan right I'm, I'm maybe progressive but I, I don't feel extremely wedded to the Democrats that's for yeah. sure yeah and I, I like I do have a inherent I have a core belief still down there somewhere that like a it, a Republican administration Republican run government isn't inher- doesn't have to be inherently bad like it could be effect you know if if they kind of were honest about it right and like ran government like a business like a, a functional effective business then yeah maybe it would work well right but like all we've seen time again in last you know recent yeah. years is that it's like nothing but dysfunction and you look at you know the city of anchorage is a really good example right now they've had yeah. you know a revolving door of weirdos let's just be honest yeah. right i mean wild and amy domboski just resigned or was fired there's she went on the news and had like this weird tell all about it where she was kind of you know running the i was trying to work, save the city from the inside where yeah. you know but she was at every single controversy that i had all the control and all the power and i was trying to save it but somehow yeah. someone that didn't have any power or control stopped me yeah you and know. you know and the city you know you visited i think right after one of our our first was, or our second snowstorm yeah i was there for the okay so the first snowstorm had happened and i rolled into town and it was just a mess i we went out we, you drove me to your house and your neighborhood was just like you know knee deep snow up to your up to your nicely shoveled driveway and yeah. then and then yeah i remember i remember thinking like matt matt we could let, let me help you out i'll grab a shovel we'll knock down that berm and you're like that's not a berm that's like the whole road and i looked out and there's just berm high snow all across the road and i was like oh okay well yeah. that's that's not going to be helpful but the um but then i got out of town right before another giant weather system hit you got a second snowstorm and then apparently a third and then now it's like freezing rain on top of all that yeah and so i can't even imagine what it's like up there because it was i was on foot most time i was there and i was just like wading around in snow banks in downtown anchorage and like the streets were not plowed like you'd be lucky to find a sidewalk that was plowed there was like uh, a lot of little back you know back streets and parking lots there were stores that were were inaccessible because you yeah. couldn't bring your car into their parking lot so people were like pulling up on the sidewalk and having someone run out of the car into this into the parking lot into the store it was um and all of this is because of a lack of plowing plowing infrastructure and people to do the plowing mm-hmm. which and, which they knew for months and months which and they months knew and months. for months and months and months yeah and that's what's I mean, it's like yes, it's an unprecedented snowstorm. It's a ton amount, a ton of snow. But like, we were like several weeks removed from it, and like m- several like major arterial roads are still like one lane as opposed to the or you know one lane in each direction as opposed to the four lanes that they're supposed to be. So like right now today, y- yeah, there's like wow, several cause... of them. Like on my road, the road by my house yeah. is a one lane road right now. Still, you have to. Everyone's like slowly been getting better and better about the like the 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 etiquette of pulling into someone else's driveway to let someone else buy it's like mm-hmm. that's the whole thing right now i mean it's, it's wild and i think you know i can complain that we can complain about the traffic of impacts and all that sort of stuff but the really big thing too is that like it is awful if you are a pedestrian if you if or if you have any mobility issues if you are trying to get around you know there's been horrible pictures of people like in walkers or or uh, uh, a guy with a uh, a seeing eye dog um, you know, post-hauling through the snow to get to stuff. And, and I think you know, some of that stuff is, 
I think really uh, revealing about some of the way you know the city prioritizes its interests and and what who it ca- who and what it cares about and you know it's it's not even to even begin to get into issues around people who are homeless and you know don't have a ton of shelter here and you know anyway so it's it's all to say it's uh if you know if this is if this is Don, uh, Bronson's idea of how a government or uh, how a business should be run i would say it's not a very good business no. I, those things are tough too because there's you know you're gonna f- government is going to fail on some level of you know like there's some standard that it's not going to meet whether that's completely cleared roads with not a snowflake on them or or whether that's you know ankle high snow or knee deep snow or what you know like and you get hit with a weather system it's going to take a little time to move all that snow around but it feels like this is something else that 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 does merit criticism mm-hmm. and just like we were saying earlier when we were talking about soccer flops i feel like the people who are complaining about the roads in anchorage like are are well justified this year sometimes i've seen this you know be a complaint that is just like hey we live in alaska we're gonna get some snow don't don't sweat yeah. it too much but this is like on a different level yeah i mean i think that like the idea that your road's gonna be cleared like you know the next day after a snowstorm is is obviously kind of ridiculous but maybe three weeks after a snowstorm maybe you know you're getting into a place where you are uh it's fair to be a little frustrated about that you know if they don't get to it, it's going to be really interesting as it as the as the weather starts warming up and you get this like melt and freeze and i saw this up in fairbanks last year they had missed a lot of like back neighborhoods and had got a lot more snow than they're used to getting and the the driving was in in like nearly impossible for some vehicles where you've got these giant pitted out puddles that have formed uh Mm -hmm. kind of cavernous ice ice puddles and then and then you're driving around up on top of the ice and then you fall into one of them i mean there were cars getting stuck in these things it was um it was pretty soupy so uh, yeah there's like it could be uh (laughs) what your spring looks like yeah, there's a ledge. Uh, one of the well, street by my house, it's like uh, one lane is about a good foot above the other lane. Oh, wow. Or like it created a ledge and, you know, it's like ice. So your car can slip yeah. off of it into you the other. slide down crazy. into the other lane. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so everyone's got to be more cautious and uh, you know, drive safer and slower. You know, and This is Anchorage, though. It's like Mad Max out here. <laughs> That's the other thing, too, is that, you know, I think there's a there's a high level of like, uh impatience that sort of the city has that seems to be worsened on the roads especially so welcome to thunderdome all right well so so okay (laughs) so but but i think all this to say i think that what government does some things that are important to to people's everyday lives that they smooth the 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 routes of commerce they you know feed they help to feed people's families they um, they help to make sure our, you know, like I, this, this makes me think of, I had a friend, this is many years before the Dunleavy administration, maybe even before the Walker administration, but he worked for, um, I guess it was DEC and did the inspections of restaurants. And he just said to me one day, like, I don't know why we do this anymore because it's not, you know, we've, we've defunded this so much that it's ineffective. Like, why do we tell people that our restaurants are safe to eat at? Because they're not, you know, we, we, yeah. we, we inspect a restaurant and then we like don't see it again for 10 years or something like that because we're you know the state's so spread out and we have so few inspectors and no one really can like get to anything unless there's an emergency and people are getting sick and so there's a lot of restaurants that just sort of 
op, you know, we're operating on trust. And mm-hmm. when the government says we have health inspectors that are inspecting your restaurants, it, you think that the government's doing that work. But if it's not doing it very well or frequently enough, then why lead people to believe that they have that level of safety at all? <laughs> and right, so, yeah. Like, so it's, <laughs> it, it, you, you kind of get into that with, with different pieces of government. You need to decide, you know, do we want that or not? Right. Mm-hmm. So I, don't I mean, know. at least, you know, I go back, you know, there was that actually reminds me of a bill that the esteemed representative Tammy Wilson of North Pole ran one of our one of my favorite legislators, honestly. Uh, but it was like early on in her time and she had a bill that would have basically removed uh, any sort of health inspections for like direct to consumer sales. Mm-hmm. And you know the idea was the idea was really to make it easier to sell at farmers markets, et cetera. Um, but part of her solution was you know because it was not going to have the same rigors of uh, health oversight was that it was going she was going to require that you give uh, a card accompanying whatever you're selling that says you know this food has not been inspected for health safety and it's and it's basically buyer beware, and at least. She's honest about it, right? Like, at least we're not kind of, you know, that wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't be a system where you're pretending that your, your food is safe. You're just, you know, it's like a, a yeah, buyer beware. And um, I don't know. It's nice to know it's the risks, right? Yeah, and, I guess. And so if when we're going feel... to, we're going to be, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Mad Max in the grocery store, then might as well, right? Yeah. Let's know, let's know it's Mad Max. Yeah. Right. So, um, so one, one thing I want to talk about today was the, um, trillion dollar spending package um that uh lisa murkowski got a ton of stuff earmarked in this spending package and um which got me wondering about like what's the difference between pork and earmarks and all that stuff but it was interesting to see to me like juno for example got 2.5 million dollars for a composting facility and we got um something like seven million dollars to uh, aid in the development of a second crossing, a second bridge across the channel here. Um, and there's just projects all over the state. Uh, they get funded out of this. Um, I think the only one that was on her initial list that didn't go was this icebreaker that was, a, oh, I think it would have put, put an icebreaker in Juneau. Um, it was interesting to see this because it was a um, return to a style of federal politics that Alaska had you know, previously thrived on, right, under, um, it was kind of the Ted Stevens, Don Young era of politicians where they would bring home a lot of cash for a lot of specific projects. And when we're talking about earmarks, we're talking about, you know, uh, instead of merit-based competitive funding in the budget where everyone kind of has a eye on it, you're saying you're kind of elevating, as a politician, you're elevating one project and saying this project is going to kind of skip the queue and, and get funding and I've decided that this is the one that I want for my district. And sometimes that's informed by feedback from your constituents and sometimes that's informed by other things. Um, so it's so there was a big to-do about, back in the Ted Stevens days, there was a big to-do about pork barrel politics and you know earmarks were eliminated for a while and it seems like they're coming back and it's it's I don't know. It's good and bad. It, it gives people something to play with, it, like chips to trade, um, things to to fight over. But it also prioritizes projects in a weird way. Um, I don't know. Do you have any experience, like from when you were first covering Alaska legislature and politics? Did you start 
you started in on that kind of tail end of that era? Yeah, it, it, that was what it was so interesting about it is that so my first year here was the last year Alaska had money. So whoops, sorry guys. Um, but yeah, that was like the last year of big capital budgets and and especially capital budget at least back at back when it was um back in those days at least the way that it it seemed to work was that you know each district house district basically had x number of dollars and it would depend on your seniority your your um committee membership um uh, whether you're not the majority or the minority and it'd be like X million of dollars, and and it seemed like more or less, or you know, the each uh, everyone would put their project asks in, and then the legislators could kind of help direct it. But yeah, it really was. It did seem like it was very much a hey, ex legislator, here's the money for your district. How do you want it spent? Yeah, and and I think on a, on the most ideal kind of level, right. Uh, they are taking a lot of imp- input from their communities and stuff. But, you know, for being honest, right, there's a lot of, you know, tennis courts and all that sort of stuff that, you know, may be wanted, right? And, and Oh, I remember the tennis courts. The thing. tennis courts was, was a whole issue. That yeah. was Anchorage, right? There was um, a group in Anchorage that that sort of said, hey, we want tennis courts and put a ton of money into the capital budget for like a specific tennis court project. And, mm-hmm. and then a bunch of other organizations are like, uh, what about... You know. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that <laughs> what one about plowing the roads. Yeah, and I yeah. think that one uh in some of those cases too, it's interesting this last budget we actually got, you know, this last year was the first year in a while that we had money in it again. And um you know, there were like w- kind of pet school projects that were in it that were and the school project budget's really interesting because it's like there's there's there you're supposed to be more fair with it right they don't yeah. want to have earmarks you you know they want to be able to say have a list of all the projects and you get ranked on them and it's kind of a bullshit process if we're being honest but it's the kind of fairest process they have so far yeah um and, and people were kind of jumping the line with it and and that sort of also that also sort of raises like some red flags with it because you know we're trying to make sure everyone's you know needs are sort of met fairly but when you get to uh, jump the line and, and install your, I think that one was uh, diving boards or something like that. It's going to be very difficult to make those decisions about a specific project because like if you're deciding like let's formula fund education, you're not making a decision about a specific project. You're saying we want education. We, we want our children to be educated. Let's pay some money for that. But if you're saying let's put a roof on the school that's leaking or let's, you know, de- deciding which district, which, you know, which school gets that kind of attention can really bring out the inequity. You start seeing yes. this powerful legislator got a Olympic-sized swimming pool that is mothballed in their community, and gosh, couldn't that have money have been put to a different and better, higher purpose? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's you know it becomes a it, 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 there's a lot of room for funding projects that maybe aren't as useful as some of the other projects. So is that the difference between pork barrel and earmarking, or what's the difference? No, oh, you know, yeah. So I'm still trying to understand that, but I, but the best I can understand is that that earmarks are, earmarks are when you, you Matt go in and get some money put aside for projects in your, uh, in your area or for your for your various constituents or whatever. So you're gonna go get your Olympic sized swimming pool and your tennis court, and you're gonna get a roof on your school. Those are like earmarks for specific projects. Pork barrel politics is when you're bringing home pork for um, almost like a quid pro quo or like a um, maybe a powerful donor or a constituency group um, that, 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 
you owe favors or you know that kind of thing so these guys put you in office to go and get a bridge that they're probably going to be the contractors on so that would be more of like pork barrel spending is is spending that's that's a little greasier you know than than an earmark (laughs) and so i'd imagine though that so if i'm your if i'm your constituent and you go and you march away to congress and come back with like like at you know ten billion dollars for Alaska podcasts, and I know that we're gonna get some of that. Then that's that's pretty pork barrelly. Uh, okay, but you yeah. probably never say that out loud, right? So oh no, it's, it's all just very all, like, it kind of ends up in the eye of the understood. Beholder, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very hard to distinguish between what is a pork barrel project and what is an earmark. So yeah. they're often used interchangeably. Asking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but one has a more derogatory uh, connotation. Yeah. Getting back to something we were talking about earlier here, you spent a lot of time in the last month or so watching uh, the Eastman trial. And um, there's actually two trials going on that determine, um, you know, will people be seated in the legislature? Um, There's also the Jenny Armstrong case going on. I don't know if you've been watching that as well, but I'm just kind of curious in the Eastman trial. Do you want to just give me like a quick little summary of of your insights? Like what did you learn from that? So the basics of the trial, if you haven't been following, is um, uh, a Wasilla voter, constituent of Eastman's, has brought a challenge to his eligibility to serve office under Alaska's disloyalty clause, which is like it's kind of it's it's a Red Scare era anti-communist thing that says basically, if you are uh, a member of a group that uh, advocates for the violent overthrow of the U.S. government or state government for that matter, uh, then you can't serve an office. And David Eastman is a member of the Oath Keepers. It's a uh, anti-militia, or it's an anti-government militia group, kind of loosely organized, um, but its leadership, uh, Stuart Rhodes and uh, several other people have uh, been found guilty of seditious conspiracy and several other charges for their involvement in January 6th. Um, They were responsible for a lot of the really incendiary kind of rhetoric around that uh a lot of like bloody civil war blah 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 um a lot of yeah. january you know a lot of well a lot of like bringing weapons in and mm-hmm. oh yeah and that's the other thing they were sta- yeah they were staging a bunch of weapons and, uh nearby yeah. too just in case trump called them into uh yeah action and so it was this really kind of interesting case where you know i i don't I don't know how you try to, you know, the, I don't know exactly how you go about litigating this case. It, it definitely got a little out of hand. Um, so we had uh, Stuart Rhodes was one of the people who was called to testify from federal custody in Virginia. Uh, you know, a guy named um, uh, John Guandalo, who's basically known for being this, you know, ram- rabid anti-Muslim uh, former FBI agent who had slept with a source and punched a sheriff who got mad, you know, who wasn't anti-Muslim enough. So are these like Eastman's buddies or did they just I, like, yeah. Fun- oh, and also like, Johnny and also John Eastman, the right, Trump, Trump law- lawyer, the Trump lawyer who like came up with every sort of all the legal thinking around January 6th and who has been recently recommended for criminal charges also so testified. He's, so he's got all these people on speed dial and they're going to testify at his trial, but he doesn't know any of them. Yeah. Well, no, a couple of them even said they're buddies. And so... Oh, they did. Which ones? Who's he buddies with? Uh, John Eastman. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. I think uh, John Eastman's on his legal team, too. He was, wow. like, doing... Yeah. I, I mean, it was it was wild. I mean, the John Guandalo was talking about how 
uh, Mitch McConnell's a agent of the Chinese government, you know, how Antifa was really behind it, you know, the New York Times is a Chinese front, you know, Chinese mm. communist front. So it, it was weird. And then, you know, the whole thing, kind of as most trials do, seem to work is that you know there's a lot of mud thrown at the wall and very little of it actually matters right so the judge in this case basically he he had two sort of main points which um were is eastman a member of the oath keepers yes yes he says he what says he is and uh two are the oath keepers an anti-government group which was also yes because their leadership has been found of yeah guilty of sedition or okay. seditious, sorry, seditious conspiracy. So the case ta- passed both of his tests. Yes, but, no, but what's the but? So there's a case. So basically, there's this thing called the First Amendment and this other thing called mm. you know First Amendment case law. I've heard of this. And, yes. and basically, uh, there's another Supreme Court case that more basically says that if you're uh, being a member of a group isn't enough to you know, uh, link you to that group. You have to basically show some kind of specific intent to support whatever, you know, untoward goal of that organization may be. So, you know, Eastman said he, you know, he said he basically really did basically say that he joined because he likes oaths. You know, he likes oaths and he likes bylaws. So, you know, he basically came out as a big nerd, you know, which, you know, it's not really that big of a surprise. He's, yeah. Um, but yeah, so hasn't you know nothing showed that he had joined the group uh, because they were anti-government. Uh, you know, he went so to January six. He listened to the thing. He walked up to the steps, but he didn't go in. He didn't. Yeah. You know, nothing, no no evidence of him going in or going beyond that point. And Although, he wasn't invited to their Olive Garden party afterwards. Yeah, he wasn't. Although there is a weird point, and I wish I would be curious if they had probed it a little bit. But um, John, uh, Stuart Rhodes at his thing said that they had like normal clothes, uh, oath keepers out, you know, monitoring the scene, looking for Antifa, basically. That right. you know they weren't, you know. So we there's a lot of been a lot of focus on the oath keepers who were, you know, dressed up in you know the paramilitary, you know, cosplay, basically sure. going in the stacks, blah blah. You know, it's it 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 really is. It would be incredibly pathetic and lame if it wasn't an attempt to overthrow the government, I guess. Maybe it, it still is. Did but. they? I, I mean, there's questions that I wonder if they an, asked it uh, during oh, so, this trial. Oh, like, did, did they ask, like, if he was in communications with these guys during the day? Yeah, he, like, said, he said no, but they were all on signal, right? So it's right. hard to... That's the thing, you know, with all... But didn't the government it, get some of those signal communications they have through, through the other of them, yeah. trials? So, some of the signals and some of the accounts, like the third-party accounts of what was going on in the signals. Yeah. So it's not super firm. So they don't, you know... Did, like, did they tell know us what, like, sure. Eastman's, yeah. like, uh, Oathkeeper username forum troll chat well, That wasn't talked is, about, or, at least at like, the, during the trial. Because like uh, I feel like was. I would love to just know that because I feel like you just punch that into Google and then you read the like forty seven awful things he wrote about Alaska yeah. you know and um, I just it, it's it feels like the what they needed to do here is just sort of prove a greater connection to this organization right a deeper involvement in yeah I mean I in think... in the organization and in the events of the day like he was there on site like who did he talk to what conversations yeah. happened and he did a good job of of either a remaining at arm's length or be covering his tracks yeah 
And so, you know, it all in all, though, I think the result of this trial, personally, I, I'm pretty happy with it because I think that <laughs> the well, I don't I don't think it's a good practice to uh, clamp down on who can participate in democracy too much. Yeah. I think I think I think the great travesty here is that there are voters in Alaska who continue to vote for David Eastman. I think that that's the you know that's the the sad thing that's that's going on here is that there are people who who vote for him over and over again. And and I think that that's you know that's a tr- a tragedy, but it's tempered by the rest of Alaska. Yeah, and I, I you know and that's the thing too about this rule that we have in the Constitution is it is kind of dumb, right? Like you know it's it's a it's a Red Scare era thing that even at the time the country was kind of moving away from, you know, it's definitely, you know, it's, it was born in the kind of McCarthyism, you know, there's secret communists around every corner thing. And, and, you know, you look back at the history of those laws and it was, they used the red scare to go after basically any sort of political opponent of any kind. Right. Right. And, and you don't want that. And yeah, it's not good. And, and I think the, the thing is that, you know, the reason, the reason I was kind of so interested in it be, is because it, the language in this amendment is doesn't have a whole lot of leeway, right? It doesn't say provided substantial support or meaningful support or, or had any intent. It just says if you are a member of a group that is bad, you are yeah. no longer. And so it was this really, you know, the test is super strict and super straightforward. Um, the, 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 where they bring in some of the other case law is interesting. It's going to be really interesting, too, moving forward with it, though, because now we do have a ruling that says Eastman is a member of this group. This group is, you know, meets the definition of anti-government. He just doesn't get dinged because well, at the time that he joined, he didn't know they were anti-government. And he didn't. that's not why he was there in the first place. And so now that it has been revealed to be an anti-government group, how does that I'm, – I'm really curious about how it works moving forward. I think – the uh, statement from Randall Kowalki, the the person who brought the lawsuit against Eastman, is is kind of interesting. It says, you know, in the final quote, in the final analysis, the court agreed with us that the Oath Keepers is a dangerous organization, but found that Representative Eastman had enough plausible deniability to escape disqualification. But anyone who joins or continues to associate with the Oath Keepers after this ruling does so at their own peril. Yeah. And it's and, kind of interesting where it's like, you know, Eastman still is a member of this group that has been determined to be an anti-government group. So, you know, it's not like the um, it's not like we've like passed the check. There's not like there's a single t- checkpoint in time. It, this, right. this loyalty clause doesn't say once you get challenged, you are now free of. You if know, he the, runs for office yeah. again, someone can say, listen, now he knows because of this trial and he continues to associate with this group, he should not be eligible. And Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier with like the political flopping, right? Like, are we going to make a big fight about this again and have another several week, you know, several month high stake like legal battle over it for it all to not like matter again? I, you know, I and I think that like it's a little bit, you know, like... At, at the same time, though, like I do think that a lot of really interesting stuff has been put on the record here. I think that you know you saw this the beginning of this year, uh, or beginning of 2022. You know there was a pressure on in the legislature to do something about Eastman's membership. The Republicans kind of reflexively all stood around and, and protected him at that point. But then there was like a bunch of hearings where they talked about just how weird these Oath Keepers really were, 
And at that point, they just kind of at least got quiet. You know, at least they weren't full-throated defense of this guy. And I kind of wonder, you know, we talk about what happens with the Alaska House moving forward is like what does what happens there right um you know do they are they going to look at this trial look at this determination and say yeah we really want this guy on our team that's going to be a really interesting values question for some of those republican legislators so they you know is being in a rigid uncompromising majority with only republicans more you know is that more important than not serving with a guy who's a member of anti-government militia group. So yeah. I, guess he, I guess he didn't mean to. So, you know, if Eastman has, it has people that really want to get rid of him in his community. I think there, there's a possibility we'll see him back in court again over this, um, over his, you know, reluctance to say, Oh, I, I don't want to be a part of that group anymore. And um, you know, Hey, like but, maybe, maybe that's the proper representation. Maybe like uh, at least, you know, Alaska wants you know, one of 40 to be an anti-government militia member. It's probably, yeah. you know, it pr- probably an accurate, accurate representation, right? You know. Yeah. What else is, uh, what else is cooking? What else is going on? We've, we've got the, um, the governor's budget is out. Um, I, I felt like it was fairly milk toast. It was a, it was mm-hmm. a nice, boring budget. It had the sort of like Dunleavy mega PFD in it that I don't think we'll see materialize. But other than that, a lot of it felt a little phoned in, to be honest. Like it felt sort of just, um, and it's kind of how February or December budgets are kind yeah. of historically. Too. Yeah. Most of them. And you know, like up until like 2019 and then <laughs> that was like the, the, no, and remember we didn't really see the really, te- the really draconian version of the Dunleavy budget didn't come out until it was the February. 20- oh yeah, that's right. Oh yeah. Because there's the first yeah. draft one, right? Okay. They so then- do their final budget then. So we yeah. really don't have a great look at what it is. I think it like, yeah, I've been reflecting a little bit about, you know, that what that original Dunleavy budget was going to be or was is, you know, that word of phoned in, I think it is totally accurate, right? Like you look back at that original budget and, you know, Dunleavy didn't set out to cut fair, you know, he didn't say Don Arwen, go cut the fairies, go cut education, go eliminate the arts community. He just said, pay out a big PFD. I don't care how you do it. Yeah. And that to me is like almost worse, I think. And I think that's like what is so frustrating about it still. I think kind of what what bothers me about it is that it really doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of investment in it. It's just sort of making the numbers on the paper match, right. you know, and consequences. I want like, this number to be really big. So sweep as much stuff into there as you can. It doesn't really matter yeah. what it is. Yeah. And, it, you know, and, and, and you end up with these horrible things like the the food stamp backlog and you know it doesn't affect apparently doesn't affect him enough to to really for it to ever have been on his radar right so it, it ends up um you know the, the people who are paying the price for that sort of stuff it isn't like oh all of a sudden the oil companies have to wait longer for permits or right. or or whatever it's that it's medicare folks and it's it's, it's, yeah it's it's people that need people who are on the edge who need some help you know to feed their families who are are feeling the pain of this and i think that why do we have such a large homeless population though it's so strange it's so weird just don't even know why we stopped helping people out and like the homeless population got really big weird yeah the thing that you see here too is that we have a permanent fund now that competes just with everything else in the budget and it's become another you know appropriation line so 
I don't know how the legislature fixes this or comes to an agreement on like how to move forward, but the 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 state of things right now, the the permanent fund as an, a competitive appropriation is is just wreaking havoc on on the budget making process and uh, especially I would say in election years. Um, mm-hmm. The you know because now you've got this like check to Alaskans that is competing with education funding and if you look at like education funding let's look at the last couple of years anything that is flat funded is essentially taking like a 14 percent cut you have had wild inflation and probably even more so in alaska you know probably the localized inflation is probably mm-hmm. even greater than what we're seeing on the on the national level so if you've got seven percent inflation each of the last two years and you're flat funding education you know you're cutting pretty pretty deeply into that into that budget and we're seeing anchorage is talking about shutting down schools and they're gonna you know they i think they said six schools and then they went down to one but the the kind of common knowledge is that like this is going to be a little bit of a pilot project we're going to shut down one school and then we're going to use that knowledge to shut down a bunch more the next year it's wild yeah yeah so and and it's not just happening in anchorage you know there's shortfalls in education budgets all over the state and those are going to continue to ramp up and we're going to see those those cracks are going to turn into crevices we're going to have some i think hard years ahead in reckoning with you know all of our infrastructure was minted in this golden age of this oil boom in the 70s and it's now uh you know 50 55 years old and and it's starting to really fall apart and we're gonna have you know the result is that we have to fix it all at once with no money when i first started uh, working in the, in the at the news miner in Fairbanks, you know, a lot of the budget budget maintenance or building maintenance was starting to come up, and it was like all these buildings had been built with a fifty year lifespan, and surprise that lifespan is you know running out in two thousand ten to two thousand twenty, and uh, you know it's a massive bill. You talk to you know, there's several legislators who you know talk about the deferred maintenance budget on, on all of our stuff and. It, it's just growing and growing and growing every single year. It's all the, you know, all these sort of projects that we need to do to, to keep things working, it, just really to maintain the status quo yeah. and that we don't have the money for. And and when all those sort of things start to meet, you know, it's going to be really tough. And I think that is that is one of that is probably one of the great things that is that keeps me uh, pacing at, at 3 in the morning when I'm fi- looking for something to worry about is, you know, just like how, you know, not just how do we fix these things, but kind of who pays the price uh, of those solutions, yeah. right? You know, which schools are they closing? The ones in the in the poor neighborhoods or the ones in the nice neighborhoods? Right, yeah. right. And, you know, and that's and that's you know how how we sort of feel this sort of different pain and who is paying for it. I think is really you know is such an interesting question. I think it's and it it does you know it kind of speaks to the bigger I think revelations we've had about you know, our work system, all the inequities that were revealed in our sort of work life by the pandemic, right? About, you know, who really has power in these work situations and who doesn't. And, and you know, just how so much of this kind of comes down to like rich mega corporation versus regular person, you know? And, uh, you know, I hope, I guess, moving forward, and I think that's what is, is good about some of these new legislators that are coming in. I think they are young. They have really strong... Uh, hopefully really strong ideas about providing opportunity to people who might not have it to, you know, to, to basically meet the needs of the, of the neediest. And I think that 
you know, stuff, stuff like that gives me some hope. You know, I think that, you know, we look at the Senate in Alaska where we have the, you know, supermajority of 17 members yeah. uh, of both good, you know, and hardworking Republicans and Democrats all yeah, working the Senate, together. The Senate looks great this year. Like the, going into this yeah. legislative session, the Senate really is looking very, very solid and strong. And it's amazing to think that we have a 17 member majority out of a 20 member body. <laughs> and then. I, you know, the House, I don't know how, what shape they're, they'll take, but I totally agree with you. There are so many new and exciting faces there um, and important voices, you know, that, that bring lived experiences that I don't think we've had represented before. And I think having a lot of those people in the room is going to be really important. And and I, I do I do sort of look forward to this legislative session. Um, I, I don't know what dramas will emerge, but I'm sure there will be some. I mean, it's going to be tough to do anything without an organized house. But. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sh- I, and I'm sure at some point they'll figure that out because they have to. But I, when we have a clean sweep and there's a lot of new people coming in, there's a learning curve. People are like figuring out how you know what levers and buttons do what, and you know, not being organized isn't necessarily the end of the world because they're all going to be learning how this all works anyways. It's going to slow things down. It's going to slow down that learning curve, but you've watched enough legislative sessions to know that a ton of the work gets done in the last couple of weeks, right? There's like, Mm -hmm. there's big pre-file bills and flurries of activity throughout, but when it really comes down to it, they need the pressure of a deadline and that's when big decisions get made. So if there's organization in the, in the next couple of weeks, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I think like you're basically seeing either a, a small group or a large group, depending on kind of how you look at it all, of, of people who are more interested in, in kind of the political battles and political leverage that they can hold over each other than, you know, there's a ton of issues to address, right? Like grocery prices are crazy. Childcare costs are super high. Education's like, you know, in a rough spot. And all these criminal justice reform, all these sort of things that, you know, you could, you'd think that would be, have some room for, some efforts to make a difference, right? To especially on stuff like childcare, this battle, or whatever. Of, but like the, the battle of organization is about those issues because what you're saying is how will we approach those issues? How yeah. will we deal with those issues? What or you know what the shape the organization takes is very important to how those issues are handled. And so I think right. I think that the battle for organization isn't just a fight over politics. It's a fight over those issues that you're talking about yeah. and a realization that whoever has power gets to decide how we shape those issues and that there's some very different ideas. You know, if you put Eastman in charge of the house, those issues are going to be dealt with differently than if you put anyone else. Yeah. Right. So, so I think it's okay. I think it's okay to like let that process happen and understand that that process is important just to solving those issues as well. Fair. Yeah. Okay, good. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) Well then, um, yeah, I don't really have a lot more to, to add to this. I think it's like a, it's a nice time to sort of like reflect on on last year. We got this little quiet time before the legislature starts, and um, and was just sort of take it as it comes and see what happens. Um, and uh, it's nice to catch up with you and chat with you. I, you know, I one thing that I I did at the very end of last year is I st- I stepped away from Twitter. I don't know if you know it was partially related to the ownership and all the weird stuff that was going yeah. on, but but also I think like it was just sort of me. Like I felt like I needed a change in my life. I needed to sort of engage differently, and so I don't really have a new sort of like internet home. But um, 
But I guess this is it for now, um, doing this podcast. I'm going to try and post more on my Patreon, which is, you know, like the kind of like your Substack, I guess, for like a, a dollar a month, you can hear me ramble about artwork and post pictures of ravens on Nimbus or whatever. And then on like the engagement side, I've been just reading the news a lot more. And, you know, your newsletter, I would say, actually, is like one of my one of my uh, favorites that comes into my inbox. I get a couple. I, you know, like read the MIT technology review and news summaries like um, from different legislators that summarize Alaskan news articles and put those out. But your your Substack's been great to to follow. And I like the the approach that you take to it. I think that you've got a good for whatever reason, your voice there is just a little bit different than it is on your blog. It feels a little more personal and a little more like it's introspective. I like the way you break things down. You sort of do like, here's the story and then here's why it matters. And that additional mm-hmm. context is really helpful. So thank you. Yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to say like new new ways of communication in uh, 2023. Um, uh, I'm interested in, in hearing what's out there and I'll probably plug back in in some way somehow, but I don't. I don't know that it's, I don't know that I'm going to jump right into some new social media thing right away just yeah, because I, I don't it, think you that's. Know, I think it's been interesting. It's, you know, I, we have, you know, Twitter's not even that it, it, it's been around for a while. Right. But it's like not something, you know, we've gotten along. Humans have been fine without social media for most of our <laughs> history. Right. And I think just that there's carving something... snarky tweets into rocks. So. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think that like, I think that we are not well equipped to have that much access to that much gloom and and kind of weird angry voices at all times. And I think that like yeah, there's a lot of it that's really positive and fun and stuff, but I think it's easy for it to be a misery machine, right? To just be con- just be a source of misery. And I think that's like you know, when there's a lot to be, there's a lot to, you know, you read the news, you be, there's a lot to be miserable about. And I think, you know, it's, it's important to find hobbies or, or places or people or whatever to find it as, as sort of outlets that are not the source of negativity in your life. And I think for me, you know, I took basically a week off, week and a half off solidly from social media. Um, you know, I, I really kind of took a, you know, a concerted effort to not really engage this last week and just sort of had time at home and went skating and, you know, played with magic cards and all that sort of stuff and, and hang out with the dogs and, and cooked a bunch of food. And I don't know, I think it, it's easy to sort of forget about how much that stuff really matters to making everything else go. And I think for me, like, it's been really interesting to, you know, kind of kind of end the year really burnt out with writing and and politics and i think uh you know i kind of go th- this is a cyclical thing for you me you have really. seemed super burnt out lately like even like when i came up and visited you were just like i mean you just felt like hung over from the election and like and yeah you i feel like you sponged up a lot of bad stuff and that you've sort of it's sort of permeated in a way that like you you've in in years past we've been doing this podcast for a long time like i feel like you've sponge up a lot of like bad energy and then somehow release it and and but it feels like you're you haven't been able to like let it go as much as you have in the past and it feels like you're still kind of carrying it around yeah yeah i i think you know a lot of it too part of it is that you know there's a constant element of like imposter syndrome that is tied up in it all because like because <laughs> you're, be like, you're a dirty I, blogger well you know i i have you know, i would never have dreamed of being in this position uh yeah. years ago you know where i 
you know, I'm independent journalist. I can kind of do what I want. Uh, I'm making better money than I ever did as, as a news, you know, as a newspaper reporter. Yeah. Like, but the, you know, and, and I'm incredibly fortunate with it all. And, and to, but at the same time to be, when I feel like, you know, at the same time, it's like, I don't have that support crew around me. I don't have, you're not editor. part of a newsroom. Yeah. Other reporters. I don't have, you know, anything else there. And so it's easy to, I think, feel incredibly guilty when it's like, well, if it's not working, then there must be something wrong with me. It's, you yeah. know, and so it's tough. And I think, you know, I've str- well, you know, struggled you with know, it for a long time. And I think it is what it's, it's so nice about having a, a direct audience like I do with the newsletter is that I get to see that, you know, I get direct communication. It's people who want to engage with this, the content in the first place that are there. And, you know, I, I've, I've seen nothing but a lot of understanding from people. And I think that makes it a lot easier when, you know, I'm having a tough time and the words aren't coming and, you know, just a random nice email pops up from nowhere. And it really keeps, really, really yeah. keeps me going. And I think, um, you know, being able to give myself a little bit of grace when it's not working has been good because I think, you know, so many times where it's like, it feels like a, if I'm not like super productive during a week and I'm not writing, but I'm at my computer for like 10 hours a day trying to write and not being productive, it feels like, I, I think it really eats me up inside um, to not be able to have like work to show for that like struggle or something. And and so being able to, in the last, last year or two of doing this, have been trying to be better about when I do hit those walls with, it to try to switch gears right to clean the house to go yeah. shovel the driveway to do something where it's like at least i'm doing something and i don't have to totally feel guilty about it like i maybe my newsletter's not out every single day but at least i'm have a good home that i'm taking care of and and it's it you know my mess isn't as bad as it usually is you know i feel like um you know, i could be more honest about it right because i think before especially early on with all this it felt really hard to talk about any of it or to be even kind of admit to myself that you know a lot of the pressures were invented by myself you you have this relationship with your audience but i think that's different than your relationship with other journalists you know like the craving for a newsroom or for colleagues or for people that are editing and like kicking around work like like maybe you know like maybe this podcast maybe our conversations fulfill some of that but i think that like the the relationship with your audience isn't going to fill that because it's not the same. And I think yeah. that maybe I look around at like, like James Brooks working for the state's newsrooms project, like his articles pop up in like the ADN and they're part of different, you know, things like that. And now I'm seeing some cross stuff with like the, you know, K2 or um, APRN will sometimes show up in different uh, news feeds. And I feel like there's a lot more, co-mingling of new sources like it's becoming more aggregate like if i step back and look at alaska news it's it's more about all of these journalists that know the landscape slotting into editorial publishing house type relationships which is which is kind of an interesting shift and change so it feels like there's this like federation effect almost like in alaska media right now where they're trying where 
the media environment is trying to reconfigure itself to to just kind of adjust to the reality of of the the newsroom as it was is a little bit more distributed it's it's more like everyone's part of the same newsroom and they're all kind of like connected and funded by different things you know someone's funded by a grant and someone's funded by a by a um you know, someone's funded by a Jim Lotzfeld and someone's funded by the subscribers that they have. And, um, and I think that maybe there's a, and I don't know what that conversation looks like, but I think there's probably a way for you to like plug into that in a more meaningful way if you want to, because you, you really are in a, you know, in kind of a privileged and unique position in that you do have a lot of flexibility in how you approach your work. And I think that Mm -hmm. if you wanted to just start, you know, following that lead of the state's newsrooms, if you wanted to to start releasing your work under like a creative commons attribution thing, like there's nothing stopping you. Is there, or is there? Yeah, no, no, I'm, I, I'm actually, uh, we're actually talking about that right now. Oh, Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so, so, uh, you might, you know, we'll see where it goes, but I might be showing up there as commentary Yeah. before too long. So that's great. So anyway, yeah. I th- and I think it's, it, yeah, I think that's, that's, part of it i think too like you know it becomes like a network of trust right like the, yeah so i well, think that that's the thing with so we had newsrooms and then we had bloggers that were kind of like outside of this thing but then now it becomes this sort of like network of trust between journalists and then journalists are sort of vouching for each other which is kind of yeah. a new new approach to things so if i so if james brooks is saying that that Matt Buxton is an okay person to read. Then, then maybe I'll read Matt Buxton. And, yeah, I mean, and... I think it, it is tough, though. I mean, I, you know, I'm definitely more outspoken about what I believe, right? Yeah. And I think that there's there's a, some dis, you know fairly some discomfort about that out there, you know. And I would you know I would say though that like journalists have brains, you know. Well, we there's also been a know, ro- there's also we, been room for commentary for you know there's been an opinion page in newspapers forever, yeah, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but I think that like, you know, I I think to me be, being able to fulfill this place where I'm able to bring in um, some of the context, you know, and also, you know, one of the interesting questions I get from my old editor is like, well, what's your access level like now? You know, are you getting the interviews? And the answer for most of those cases is no, you know, like Dunleavy doesn't answer my emails and I honestly don't really care. Like I think well, part was of the that last time you emailed them though, I get the sense that you're not really doing I mean, that I stopped, work. I stopped like, after a while because yeah. it just didn't matter. To me, it's really interesting because the more that I've seen the way that the Dunleavy administration in particular operates is that there's a lot of like quid pro quo, not quite in there, yeah. but there's a little bit of like, ac- they kind of hold the access over people's heads. Mm-hmm. And I think that is really disgusting to me. Like, I don't want to ever have to worry that what I write is going to jeopardize my organization's access to the governor. Yeah. And so... And I think that if if he's gonna if he's gonna say you can't ask about Kevin Clarkson or else we're never gonna talk to you guys again, then he wasn't really worth talking to in the first place. And so, but like, I feel I, like I, you I stopped very... asking questions like five years ago. I feel like you don't ask questions anymore. I feel like you go to these meetings that no one else goes to, and you sit down and you observe and you write down what they're saying, and then you bring that you dredge up these like nuggets from the deep because no one else is 
you know, you're doing yeah. like super important work. I, mean, I still do inter- I still do interviews. Do, do not you, as not as often. Yeah. I just don't I I don't see it very often. And I don't not and I'm very not, yeah. Well, I'm not saying that that's direct a source cover. We've talked actually this is one of the earliest conversations we've ever had, I think too, about this. I'm not saying this is a bad thing. I'm just saying that your style of journalism seems to evolved into basically like not trusting people to give you straight answers and yeah. and the people that you want answers from most are not going to answer you the most and so you just document meetings which is yep. the best way to do it because then you're getting like kind of objective truth of this person went to a meeting and did this thing which mm-hmm. seems to indicate that they think this rather yeah. than you're you're judging people on their actions not their words which is like yeah which is I think that, yeah, good. that's a good way to put it. Because I think, like, you know, you, one of the really interesting lines from the redistricting trial, which kind of came up here, is that, like, no one's ever going to say, yes, I redistricted. And, well, yeah. they almost, except for they almost did in this one. But, like, they're never going to admit yes. that they're doing yeah. something evil, right? Or not evil, or they're not, they're, they're never going to admit they're doing something wrong. My intention was to help this specific person who benefits me. And, yeah. yeah. No, no one comes out and says that. And, and I think often in those situations, they don't even think that. They just yeah. sort of almost do it subconsciously. You're like, yeah, oh, I well, think, he's well, a good guy, and I helped him out. Of course yeah. he's going to help me out because he's a good guy. Well, and you look at Eastman, too, when he's on the stand talking about the Oath Keepers, right? He's got all this kind of, like, kind of wishy-washy double language, you know. Is he saying Oath Keepers with the capital O, or is he saying Oath Keepers with a lowercase o? Because they definitely were saying that if you're kind of listening. There's like, well, I support being an Oath Keeper, lowercase o. I'm a, I've been an Oath Keeper since the 90s. Yeah. You know? People should keep their oaths. And Yeah, and, you know, I think there's so much of that out there that the, 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 the words that they say are just not valuable to me. That when you're asking them, when you're asking them whether or not they did something wrong, and they tell you no, I just it doesn't mean anything because of course they're going to say no. Of course they're yeah. going to say that. Of course they're going to say that cutting, you know, a hundred positions out of the food stamp program is going to be fine. They're just going to find a way to do more with less. Yeah. Like you just got to do less with less. I don't know. I think there's like so many of these like little pieces of bullshit over the years that have like been just totally fucking fed up with i think like that that the whole you know that was the the the, the early line with all the budget cuts we got to do more with less right yeah. or we got a right size government no the answer the real answer is that we're gonna we're gonna do significantly less with less you know right. we have fewer people that will get less work done yeah it's gonna we gotta be at least honest that what you're gonna do is gonna like result in a decrease in services but they, they won't do that because why would they, right? Why would they own up to it being a objectively bad outcome? Yeah, we, we just rambled a bunch, and now we're gonna stop rambling and say goodbye. All right, end of episode. All right, over. Play music. <laughs> Matt, old man Buxton out on Hermit Island. He just doesn't. Yeah, doesn't he? He's a yeah. <laughs> Ha ha ha.